Hello, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talk to Luke Freeman, who is the executive director of Giving What We Can, a community that wants to create a culture of giving more and giving more effectively. We talk about all sorts of things related to effective giving, as well as the charity sector as a whole. First, Luke introduces Giving What We Can, including a bit of history behind the effective altruism movement, as well as his own journey within it. We then go on to discuss some of the common criticisms surrounding foreign aid, in particular whether it isn't better to just grow GDP directly, and also whether RCTs are in fact the best way to measure effectiveness. After that, we unpack exactly what it is that Giving What We Can does, what taking the pledges for example, and all the different sorts of ways that listeners can get involved. Some may already be familiar with what Giving What We Can is, but Luke explains some common misconceptions and also makes some really interesting points about how to think about virtue signaling or risk taking when it comes to charity. Lastly, we talk about some of Luke's work as an entrepreneur, particularly in co-founding Positly, which is a startup that helps social scientists find research participants. We then discuss how tech and marketing fit into the charity sector, both in developing new initiatives like Momentum and also more generally about how to transmit ideas to the public. All in all, you can see that this is a really packed episode. So if you're listening to this on a player like Overcast or Pocket Cast, then you'll see that we've added some chapter marks that can help you guide through all of this. And lastly, if you want to find out more about these topics, do have a look at our write-up on the website, where we have explanations, links, and graphs that really dig deeper into all of this. But without any further ado, here's the episode. Yeah, uh, so I'm Luke Freeman. I'm the head of Giving What We Can. Giving What We Can is a community of effective givers. As a community, we've made commitments to donate a significant portion of our income to organisations that can use it to most improve the lives of others. And as an organisation, we help support and grow that community, advocate for and communicate about effective giving. Giving What We Can is also part of the Effective Altruism community. Uh, can you very briefly explain what that is and like where Giving What We Can fits into it? Yeah, so uh, Giving What We Can actually started way back in 2009 when Toby Ord and Will McCaskill, both uh, Oxford philosophers, uh, met each other and bonded over a shared desire to act on the philosophy that they were studying and, and writing. In particular, they were influenced by the work of Peter Singer and his essay, Famine, Affluence and Morality. Um, Toby had decided that he wanted to use a significant portion of his income to help improve the lives of others. And that led to the creation of Giving What We Can. Kind of fast forward a few years, in 2011, uh, Will McCaskill was uh, working with another uh, Giving What We Can member, uh, Benjamin Todd, another person from the Oxford (laughs) crew. And um, they were working on a project which at the time was called High Impact Careers, uh, trying to apply similar ideas to Giving What We Can around looking at the most effective ways of helping people, but at this time looking at what could could be done with careers. This was later renamed to 80,000 Hours, And uh, they created the Center for Effective Altruism as this originally a bit of a back office to kind of help support these two different organizations, one which was looking at giving and one which was looking at what people could do with their careers. Over the following years, uh, the term effective altruism, which was in the name of the kind of institute, the charity that they'd started, actually got hold as an idea on its own. And we'll delve into more of like what Giving What We Can does later in the interview. Um, Before we do that, can you maybe tell us a bit as well about your own journey and how you came to uh, Giving What We Can and your role now? 
I grew up um, quite involved in anti-poverty campaigns and fundraising uh, when I was at school, uh, in you know, primary school and through my local church. I was quite struck uh, by the sheer difference in uh, standard of living that you, you would have depending on where in the world you were born. You fast forward a few years, at the end of our university, I was in the middle of the global financial crisis and I came back from Canada to Australia and just had to get a job, any job, as quickly as possible <laughs> to pay off my university debt and, um, and start being able to afford rent and everything. I ended up working in an advertising agency, entry-level job, and for a part of it I was supporting my partner as well and on an entry-level income. Uh, so I learned to be quite frugal and then when I started to actually you know get a raise and my wife got a job i realized that i had more than i needed in terms of money as i start to earn a reasonable wage and before i started to let my living standards expand to fit the amount of money that i was now earning i thought now is a great time to uh, start giving money away and that's when i started to try and find how i could get the most bang for my back buck and you know help people the most with the money that i was planning to give away that's how I actually found the work of very early Give Well and Giving What We Can uh, charity research. I kind of subscribed to newsletters and, and read a bit and changed some of my giving behavior based on that and stayed very much on the periphery of the effective altruism movement for a few more years. Uh, when in 2016, uh, the effective altruism global uh, conference in Melbourne was running and they were looking for someone with video editing skills. Uh, and so I put my hand up after seeing that listing. I took a trip down to Melbourne, you know, filmed the conference and edited the videos. And at the end of that, they were looking for someone to run the next conference. And, you know, no one said that they could do it. And I said, well, you know, I've got event management skills, you know, and kind of the rest is history. I've been quite involved since then. I've just been reading about the story behind more or less the modern animal rights movement, which started with Peter Singer's animal liberation and that book itself has a story which is that Peter Singer wasn't originally a vegetarian at all or not particularly invested in animal issues but he was in Oxford as well and he came to care about these issues only because he looked around and saw all these people who cared and were really inspired by them by them caring as much as they did and decided to make this a kind of to give this project a kind of serious philosophical grounding which is almost exactly what Toby and Will did in um the kind of story of effective altruism. And I, I really like that that parallel. There's obviously something so kind of powerful about being surrounded by like similar like-minded people who you can kind of feed off from one another and, and inspire one another. It's interesting. I actually felt like the, in some ways, the effective altruism movement was waiting to happen. If you think about people like me and many other people, the stories of how they find out about it is people already care about finding the answer to the questions of, well, how can I do the most good with whatever resource that I have? And the question hadn't really been approached as thoroughly um, and as quite expansively in, you know, in the world. And so there were many like areas like particularly within global health there was you know uh, governmental programs and scientific programs looking at quite narrowly how to do this and that's what the early effective altruism movement definitely lent into and said hey there is this great research that's being done we should use it and it should influence what we're actually doing with our lives um, but it was certainly something which felt like it that was the right time for it to exist because there are many people I hear stories and have had myself were kind of looking for this <laughs> absolutely yeah I mean, you can make su such a difference if you're one of the first two or three people 
in this movement and you're just kind of giving a name to this project that's been floating around already in people's heads. One thing that resonated with me about your, your story there is that it seemed that you, from a young age as well, were involved with these charitable causes and trying to do good in the world. What was it then about the effective altruism movement in particular that resonated with you? I think it was a convergence of factors at the same time. So I had this underlying uh, desire to do good in the world that I'd had from a very early age. Um, And I think many people do. And I also was increasingly much more interested in both science and uh, philosophy. So I was looking for really good evidence when I was looking for the decisions that I was making, whether it was my diet, whether it was my finances or whatever it was, I was like, okay, well, science is a great way of finding truth in the world and and there are other good forms of evidence as well as I've you know since learned more about one of my favorite books is how to measure anything which also talks about different ways of approaching measurement which is the reduction of uncertainty anyway yeah so there's this convergence of wanting to use more robust reasoning and science and evidence um, to direct the good that I already wanted to do and also increase interest in philosophical grounding for how to decide what good is. So I was kind of on this one path, looking more into philosophy and another path, looking more into science. And when I found a movement that was like, hey, these two things uh, marry very well together, it was like, ah, perfect. People are already ahead of the curve doing a lot of the work for me. So lots of people have objected to foreign aid just in general. People like Dembisa Moyo and William Easterly. My question is, what do you think is the strongest or the best criticism in general of foreign aid that you've heard? Yeah, uh, firstly, before we get too much into the weeds, I want to make it clear that uh, this is not my field of expertise. I'm a well-informed layperson, uh, but not an economics or aid expert. (laughs) Um, And that my job at giving what we can is to kind of nurture and grow the community and help provide information, um, including things around this, which involves collating this type of information. Um, In terms of the critiques that I think are most valid, most of the big ones around, you know, Uh, We spend too much already on foreign aid or we have what we spend doesn't have a huge effect or we won't make a real difference that, you know, aid just makes developing countries dependent on handouts. A lot of these, we actually have a a lot of information on our website. We have a myths about aid article, uh, which actually goes through and kind of shows how these aren't quite what people think that they are. They are quite overblown or beside the point sometimes when it comes to giving but i would say the one i think is most valid from my perspective is that maybe instead of donating we should you know tax the super rich and companies more but that's been proven to be very difficult and not really a reason not to act when there are things that we can all be doing right now to significantly improve the world um also, from like a political philosophy perspective, it's quite a stretch for many people to say that governments should be responsible, say, for the welfare of people overseas. Or um, we've also know that it's hard to get governments to act on behalf of future generations or non-human animals. It's been really hard even to get rights for great apes you know, when it comes to things like testing. So I think it's a, it's a legitimate piece of criticism in terms of, yes, should those who have more have a maybe a higher obligation and... Uh, would it be good if we could be more democratic about the way we approach these things? But at the moment, um, I don't think that's an objection for us choosing to give and choosing to give in things that have really robust evidence and there's really good opportunities to give. One of the objections to effective giving that I often come across is that it misses the big picture. 
So some economists like Tyler Cohen, for example, emphasize the importance of growing GDP rather than these more narrow global health interventions that charities tend to focus on. And there's a bit of evidence for this, right? If you look at where the biggest reductions in poverty have come from over the last few decades, it's been overwhelmingly in Asia and especially China, whose approach was exactly this and who received relatively little foreign aid compared to other regions. Um, by contrast, I think close to $500 billion worth of aid has been given to African countries over the last 50 years or so. And the change in GDP per capita appears to have been basically close to zero. I think at least in, in median terms. Um, so should that not make us really skeptical of how much good foreign aid can do over the long term? Yes, there's a lot, lot baked into that question. Yeah. <laughs> um, so on the like uh, comparing, say, China to different parts of Africa, um, again, not my field of expertise, but there are many regional and his historical and current political, cultural and geographical differences um, that I'm not the best to speak about. But, you know, it's not it's not a very simple correlation equals causation uh, case here. But there's also on the economic growth argument, like aid and, and economic growth programs aren't mutually exclusive. And, and many programs uh, that are in kind of aid do focus on economic growth and, and how aid can play a role in achieving that. That being said, just pursuing economic growth in and of itself could also be problematic for the long-term future. It's not a neutral force and can have many un unintended effects, uh, increasing inequality, increasing consumption, uh, increasing technological progress without necessarily the wisdom to use it right. But it is true that like economic growth, especially in China, has substantially contributed to the poverty reduction in previous years. However, even under very optimistic growth predictions, like it could take decades to eventually lift everyone on earth out of extreme poverty through economic development that might happen more organically. And I find that hard to accept, like leaving all of this potential uh, upside on the table because we you know, think that it's just going to happen on its own. Um, and there may be some very, you know, good applications for finding what are those, you know, excellent political infrastructure things to provide. But there are a lot of things that are, you know, in the realm of what we recommend. So if you have something like malaria, which uh, is particularly prominent in regions that aren't, you know, some of the ones you mentioned earlier, that is preventing people from being able to actually work because they're sick and it's you know, having people die early and stuff like that, that gets in the way of economic development. So if you can kind of blanket a region um, to remove a problem like malaria from that region, which can be done with you know, going through a region in one go and you know, providing the training and net bed nets and everything to remove malaria from that region has a huge economic impact. Zooming out from uh, development, as you said, effective altruists in general really like to apply this kind of scientific lens and scientific methodologies to finding the most effective interventions, uh, wherever that's possible, across cause areas, right? So this might look like, you know, doing an RCT where you take a very kind of specific intervention, you find the kind of the things you're able to measure and you look for really strong evidence that that intervention leads to a measurable difference. That's great in a lot of cases, but something that people have, a criticism that people have leveled at that approach is that if all you're doing is um, looking for kind of gold standard of, of evidence for the effectiveness of an intervention, you are necessarily going to be leaving out the broader, more sweeping, 
um, less easily measurable interventions that could be at least as effective or impactful. These are things like political reforms where their effects are very hard to predict. They might run into the longer term future. They depend on a lot of uncertain or unknown variables. It looks like we're just leaving all that stuff off the table if all we care about is super well-evidenced things. Is that is that a reasonable criticism? And what, what could you say to it? There's a few things in there as well. So <laughs> um, firstly, um, yeah, we are an effective giving community. So most of what we talk about is uh, donations and not all problems need donations to solve them. So in many cases, you can do more good with your time or political capital in one area. And so when it comes to things like political action at, you know, in a rich country, uh, maybe the best way of solving a lot of problems, not necessarily donating to action in that country. Similarly, there might be things in low and middle income countries where political action might be the best thing to do. And in that case, you might rely on things other than randomized controlled trials. There are different types of evidence. It is a common misconception that our definition of charities that do the most good are always ones that are backed by RCTs. This does make up like uh, a plurality of the donations from our community, which means that like there are more people that donate to things in global health and poverty that are strong evidence backed with methods like RCTs, but that's still low two digit numbers. Uh, in terms of percentage terms of the community's donations. So uh, while it is quite you know, big, it's by no means a majority. And many members rely on different types of evidence for evaluating what the most good looks like. So you can't do an RCT on nuclear deproliferation policy, but it's super important to focus on. So that's where we kind of look for problems that are big, uh, tractable or neglected, or otherwise you know, known as uncrowded. These problems, in the case of things that are big, that like affects many lives by a lot, curing a rare disease is good, but curing a common one is better because more people are affected. Similarly, like curing cancer would be more valuable than curing the common cold because cancer is much worse for a cold. So then you know, the tractable part of that is like problems that have clear ways of making progress. Tractable problems um, have a path forward and all things being e equal, we'd rather work on something where it's possible to get a lot done. And that's where some of the things around, say, political reform, uh, we may not necessarily have clear ways of making progress on that. Uh, but again, if it's big enough, it's, it's worth trying. It's worth at least having like theoretical models for how you might move forward and really strong kind of expert opinion and things like that. Um, and then, you know, on the less crowded things or things that are neglected, you, we find that the most funded problems aren't necessarily the biggest ones. So like you especially see this in health in developed countries, you see the correlation between you know, what's killing people and what we're spending money on as a government or as private donors doesn't correlate. And the problem gets even bigger when you look across all cause areas, uh, across all geographies. Less crowded problems are fantastic opportunities. A popular problem may already be getting a lot of resources. Think of things that make the news, like a rare or surprising problem might get a lot of attention, while ongoing problems like lots of people still have malaria gets less media attention. Exactly because they're so common, they're not news. Um, my undergraduate degree was in media and communications, and 
you're drilled home to you uh, on the uh, stuff around journalism stuff like what is news and news is not what's important <laughs> it news is like man bites dog like we don't have an epidemic of men, uh, men going around biting dogs uh, we have a much bigger problem of dogs biting men but man bites dog is news dog bites man isn't news and so something gets a lot of attention isn't necessarily what's the most important thing so like that's one of many frameworks to use is like this kind of you know, estimation of how big a problem is, how much progress could you make in it, and how, you know, crowded is it. That can help you look at things which don't have, like, really strong cost-effectiveness models, uh, like an RCT, you know, and, you know, where you've got lots of strong counterfactual reasoning and things like that. Yeah, I, I really like the point you made about news as a driver of people's perception of what, what's important and what isn't. Um, but it does make me wonder, like, why aren't there more media outlets that focus on slow trends that you know focus on slow news rather than some not particularly significant thing happened but it happened very recently there are websites like uh, our world and data and maybe i'm a bit kind of wonky or nerdy in this respect but i really love reading it like it's it's like really interesting to learn about so why do we see more of this and why are people so favorable towards not particularly important but very recent news I would say that by the time you get into things that are just important and communicating them in really good ways, at that point, it really resembles news. So that's almost an academic course. It's a book. Um, it's long form, you know, uh, periodical journalism. You might have a magazine, but news is very specific as a, as a field. And it's something that is built to tap into this need that we have in our brain for novelty. <laughs> like, um, so, you know, something is novel if, you know, it's flipped on its head, like the, you know, man bites dog, or it's novel, or it's interesting if it's really recent, uh, or if it's surprising. News, whilst it's really important to have good journalism, and some journalism does do this really, really long form work that's really high quality, but again, it's only news for the period after that is released. So you think of like a really big expose in Australia, we have a program called Four Corners. It's a current affairs type, you know, deep journalism program. And it gets into the news cycle uh, for the week after, uh, you know, the program airs. This really deep, important topic that they uncovered. We'll get into the news cycle. And so people will find it through, you know, their news alerts on their phone or Google News or whatever it is. But it won't stay in the news cycle because news is about what's novel. Um, it's almost in the name, new. <laughs> like, um, it's things that are new. And even if they're newly uncovered, uh, so it's not really surprising in many ways. What this really makes me think about is disaster relief. And I'd be interested to hear from you about how this fits into the effective giving framework. Because when disaster strikes, that seems to be very newsworthy, like an earthquake or hurricane or... Uh, like COVID to some degree as well, right? And that seems very newsworthy. And there also seem to be a lot of lives on the line right now. So intervening, at least to my intuition, is potentially really cost effective. But what would be even better than donating in the moment when the disaster hits, um, and you see all those charity appeals on TV, is actually donating before the natural disaster, right? Like, this could be investing in preventative measures or literally just storing it in some sort of disaster response fund so that the authorities can use it immediately, like when it's most urgent. And that's insane, right? Like the difference or the potential difference my donation could have if I donated during the disaster 
or like a year before. Yeah, unfortunately, like a lot of disasters, surprises to a certain extent. But we've got to the point where certain disasters are somewhat predictable, not exactly where, not exactly how big, but what types of disasters we will have. The current uh, coronavirus pandemic is something that we you know, have plans for around the world about what to do in these scenarios. Some were better than others. Some have infrastructure was better than others. Um, and you, know, you saw in the case of the US where they got rid of a lot of the people whose job would have been to deal with the next pandemic. And they had very specific advice about why this is important. Um, and they got rid of them. It meant that when the pandemic hit, they were much less prepared. So preparedness is a really, really, really effective thing to be investing in, in many cases, um, because also no one's paying attention to it. But when a disaster hits, um, you can often find that uh, things become overfunded. So this has happened uh, in Australia with the bushfires. One of the biggest problems uh, leading to the bushfires is climate change. We will always have bushfires, but the severity of them is getting worse. And Australia has pretty terrible climate policy. We kind of give ourselves the excuse that we're a small nation, but you know, we're one of the worst polluters per capita. And especially if you take into account of how much coal that we export, and we have some of the world's most plentiful uh, uranium and sun, and <laughs> like we could be completely uh, you know, uh, renewable or at least uh, low carbon. So, but you know, what people donate to is things like the New South Wales Bush Fire Service, which yeah, it does great work. I personally think it should probably be you know, more government funded as a you know, disaster relief, like we have you know, police and army and stuff like that. But it, even getting money to Victoria, the second biggest state, which also had a lot of fires, was difficult because uh, when you donate to a single charity, they're often constrained as to, to how they can use those funds. And it can be quite difficult for them to give it to other charities. Um, and there's a lot of these coordination problems that are particularly uh, difficult in disasters because people need to act fast, but there isn't very strong information and there isn't this kind of infrastructure set up to make sure that it's used effectively and it's able to be regranted and redistributed. Yeah, that's so interesting, right? That there's like a shortage of funds like right at the start and then like maybe... In, in some cases, like an excess of funds, right? Like when everyone's aware of it and that like kind of reallocation from if only some people could invest or like donate before, right? Um, can help like spread it out. And look, there are interesting um, charities that, you know, some of our members donate to like AllFed who are doing research on how to prepare for protecting the uh, food chain, you know, the supply chain during potentially catastrophic disasters. And that's all about thinking, how do we how do we be prepared for the next thing? Because that's the stuff that doesn't get attention. That's the stuff that is neglected. And there's a huge amount of opportunity too, because prevention is always a lot better than you know, coming in after the fact. Uh, let's talk about giving what we can. I'm interested in what in particular was your mission when you started, but also how has it changed since then in more than a decade? And where do you fit into the charity sector nowadays? So, yeah, so giving what we can uh, advocates for effective giving. We envision a world where it's normal for more people to give more and to give more effectively. We hope that by leading by example and by caring more about effectiveness and being more altruistic, we will influence other people, governments and philanthropists to do the same. Like we want to see a world where there is just a lot more good in the world. 
The biggest change since the beginning of Giving What We Can was in 2009, it was exclusively focused on uh, global health and poverty, uh, seeing that that was just a very, very obvious thing that needed a lot of funding. Um, and then over the years, uh, it has become more cause neutral as we you know, have become aware that there are many more ways of doing good and that there that will depend on a number of factors like philosophical grounding, appetite to take risks uh, versus looking for robust you know, evidence, as well as different moral weights, like how do you trade off the value of the life of an animal uh, versus a human or people alive today versus those lives in the future. When you're saying you want to promote this kind of culture of giving and kind of normalizing it well, um, what kind of projects or kind of milestones or, or things do you do to try and, and foster this this culture? Yeah, so we have uh, a few core things. So one is that we have a lot of information on our website and we're trying to start to have more in advocacy externally as well. So I'm working on a project uh, with some volunteers to do things like you know work with workplaces or community groups to have this kind of advocacy arm of giving what we can, as well as uh, the community side of things. So people become a Giving What We Can member uh, by taking a pledge. And we have a few different pledge options. And the pledge is to make a public commitment to using a significant portion of their income to help others. And so we then provide information and resources and community to help people follow through with that commitment. Let's delve a bit deeper into what this pledge is and maybe explain a bit as well what kind of the thinking behind it is, as you said, with like making this, this public commitment. Yeah, so the most famous one is the pledge or the giving what we can pledge, which is a 10% uh, of lifetime income commitment. People give 10% of the income earned over the course of their lifetime. Uh, and we encourage people to give regularly, but it doesn't have to be say like 10% every year or a month or anything like that. But yeah, regular giving is definitely in the spirit of the pledge. Uh, but we also have the try giving and the further pledge. Try giving is 1% or more for any specific period of time. People generally use this as kind of a bit of an onboarding ramp or giving it a go, um, especially if you've already kind of set up your life in such a way that you aren't sure what you might cut to make giving uh, more of an option for you, or if you, ha you know, have harder financial constraints, then it's a really good way of making a commitment that is smaller or shorter that allows you to build it up and kind of work your way up to something more if that's what you're keen on doing. Um, and then the further pledge, which is made most famous by um, giving what we can two founders, uh, Toby Ord and Will McCaskill, taking this pledge. And it's to set a living allowance and give everything above that, uh, adjusted for inflation. And this is clearly like a very, very big commitment, right? Um, why do you ask for this 10% figure? What is the, the thinking and the rationale behind that? Yeah, so uh, for most people, 10% is a meaningful commitment, but not out of reach and not too life-changing. It's for people who want to make giving effectively um, and helping others through their income a meaningful part of their life. And so it's a significant commitment uh, for that reason. And there's also cultural and historical precedent in things like tithing or sales taxes. And it's also just mentally very easy to calculate. Also, the difference between you know 1% and 10% is 10 times. It's much bigger. But from 10% to 20% is only twice as much but significantly more impactful to someone's life. Um, so you're kind of only getting a, you know, a factor of two there. 
Um, and similarly, going from zero to one is like infinitely higher, but still not a huge amount of money. So going from zero to one and then from one to 10 is a nice onboarding process for people who want to make a meaningful commitment to helping others, but you know, want to work their way into it. Uh, the other thing too is many of our members give more than 10% if that's what they can afford. And some make a commitment to make more and others just do it on a kind of ad hoc basis or you have a goal to give more. 10% being kind of the core option that's most popular seems to work because it fits in that middle ground of something that's quite significant, but also quite accessible for many people. As I understand it, taking the pledge uh, with giving what we can, at least by default, gets your name on a list of people who have taken that pledge. It's a public thing. What's the thinking behind making that decision public? Shouldn't it just be something that I choose for myself and I keep to myself? Yeah. So I'll take that in two parts. So like, firstly, the reason behind pledging, which has kind of three main reasons. One is at the individual level, um, we find that making public commitments helps us to live up to our values and stick with the goals that we might otherwise let slide. So this is kind of when you do things publicly, you're more committed to it. At the group level, we find that joining a community, so knowing that other people have also done that and who these people are, provides us with the support that makes it easier to follow through with our commitments and the advice that makes it, you know, that helps it to be more effective when, do, when doing so. Um, and then at the society level, so like zoom out and you find that taking a public pledge helps inspire others to follow suit. Together, you know, we can have a world where giving effectively and significantly is a common practice. Um, and personally, like I found committing to use my income to help others has brought a lot of meaning to my life. I know that I'm accomplishing something I care about. And I've met lots of really caring people who are making a difference in the world. And like, that's a really nice thing to surround yourself. And it was this kind of like moment of, oh, other people care in the same way. And like, by putting your name on a list, you're helping those other people looking at that list going, yeah, that's, that's what I've been looking for. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, this, this kind of theory of change, how many people will need to have done something for you to do it? And, like, it's really hard to get from, like, that zero to one. But once one person does something, there are a bunch of people around who will do it if one other person has done it. And then there are even more people who will do something if two people have done it. And you kind of keep working your way up until you end up with a social norm. And this is why, like, that is quite important. And giving what we can... Our focus isn't on the amount of money moved, unlike your know, other philanthropic organizations. Our focus is the number of people who are making and keeping a significant commitment uh, because it's a cultural project. And kind of the second part about it is like, you know, people often shy away from talking about giving. And I believe that as a culture, we're too quiet about giving. I totally get it. I'm someone who's like humble sometimes to a fault in terms of like, I've definitely experienced this. And in Australia, we have this like tall poppy syndrome. You kind of don't want to get too big for your britches. <laughs> and it, being in entrepreneurship for me, that was really tough. Like we have to be pitching to people. You have to be like kind of big noting yourself. And you're, you're in a world where especially like Americans are much more good at talking themselves up. And so like, I understand this like cringe about like, talking about yourself. <laughs> um, but the way to get ideas out there is to talk about them. And, and, and you talk about things publicly. So we're more likely to stick to it if it's public and we put a signal out there uh, that this is something that's worth doing. And you think about like all of the signaling that we're doing, like people with like conspicuous consumption uh, or giving to things uh, to get a, their name on a building. Like 
if you think of an actual like really good signal that you wanted to send out there that you wanted other people to follow you know that is there can't be too much better than to care enough about others that you're willing to make a significant commitment to make their lives better it's, it's such an interesting point as well. The criticism that, that people hear is like this like idea of virtue signaling of like, oh, you're only donating um, to make yourself feel good or to make people think that you are a good person. But really the people who benefited it from the end of the day, right, whether it be the malaria nets in Africa or the future generations or the uh, like disaster preparations and stuff like that really doesn't matter. Like that benefit is still real. Um, it seems to really distract, right, like from the conver- the real conversation. And just imagine your outrage, like imagine how angry you would be if you found out that like there was a moment in time that one of your ancestors could have been, you know, public about what, you know, what they thought was best to do around climate change or slavery or women's suffrage. And they shut up because they didn't want a virtue signal. <laughs> like we seen as like, oh, you know, Bob is, you know, talking too much about this thing. He's just showing how much he cares by like not wanting to have any slaves. And you're like, man, how embarrassed would you be <laughs> if, if, if that was their reason to not act? So you, you mentioned, right, about like growing this community then in uh, giving what we can. Can you maybe talk a bit as well about like recent successes uh, that, that you've had? Giving what we can has grown. Uh, it's doubled in the last few years, uh, but it's also had uh, a bit less attention uh, on it due to a bit of split and focus across other projects at the Center for Effective Altruism. So I'm really excited to come on board and kind of throw some energy into it, doing things like making sure that there's regular updates on the you know, newsletter and blog and website and things like that. that there's regular events that we're you know, working with our, our partners, both you know, charities and evaluators and strike up new partnerships, working on trying to do things like hook into other people's audiences, you know, people who have some prominence to have them either talk about, you know, giving what we can or effective giving or the pledge and things like that, as well as some work on starting other ways that people can be involved. Um, One that I'm working on at the moment is a company pledge. We've had many people reach out to us and say, hey, I've you know, made this commitment myself, but I also want my company to make it. I'm personally a member of Founders Pledge um, from my you know, times in entrepreneurship. And that is a fantastic program. I really have so much you know, love for that. But it's designed for people who are planning to have a liquidity event. So where you sell your company or get acquired or something like that, because that's when you give. So it's like, hey, don't give now because you're like, live on ramen noodles, not give it away, and then earn a bunch of money later (laughs) and then give it away. Uh, Whereas many people are going, hey, I want to build a sustainable business that I can draw an income from and give some of my income, but also I want to be baked into the company that the company will use a significant amount of its profits to help others. And so that's one thing that I'm, you know, working with a number of interested companies at the moment to, you know, develop this uh, pledge offering as well. So there's a few things in the works um, and yeah, working with a bunch of volunteers as well has been a great experience uh, and I'm also really enjoying that they're coming up with a lot of ideas and things that they would like to pursue. Giving what we can is more than anything it's built off its members so if you have a group of members who are passionate about you know spreading the ideas of effective giving and they have different skill sets if they're able to bring that to the table and say hey I'm gonna I want to use this that can really help you and that energy and that you know skill sets can be fantastic and then eventually you know once we test and find out what's working for the growth of the community that's when we will start to you know double down um, and invest in that with you know staff time or other resources and 
you must have heard from um, a lot of people who have taken the pledge by this point. Were there any stories or anecdotes that really stood out to you? I've actually had several people tell me that they have started saving a lot better since they uh, started giving and made a commitment to give like specific percent. They're like, I didn't know what I earned and what I spent. So I just like spent money and never had any money. And then I thought maybe I should use some of my money to help others. And then I needed to do a budget for the first time ever. <laughs> and now I'm you know, saving 20% of my income, giving 10% and plan to you know, donate a lot more over the rest of my lifetime with the money that I'm, you know, wealth and I'm now acquiring because I can save 20% of my income <laughs> um, because I now know how to budget. Um, that's, that's one that surprised me. Um, but I think the overwhelming thing that I hear is uh, a satisfaction that they're able to really live up to their values and uh, do something that they think is important but would probably otherwise find it hard to do if it was all on their own. Being able to know that there are other people doing this out there who are making helping others in this way an important part of their life is a motivation uh, that kind of adds on to just not just helping people, but also helping people and not feeling like you're an out a social outcast for helping others. <laughs> um, and then also getting to meet those other people and the conversations you then get to have and the way you get to refine your thinking. Like I've updated my opinions on, you know, where I should be giving and in what ways. And uh, I've learned a lot by engaging with other people. Can you talk maybe a bit more um, concretely about like what kind of things um, you now think differently about um, when it comes to giving or when it comes to um, like donations? Yeah, so I was definitely down the RCTs, um, you know, uh, the outstanding form of evidence as like the science nerd in me was like, yeah, this is the best. We should all have giving directed by RCTs um, to, oh, okay, well, if you want to do the most good, maybe I should apply some of my like entrepreneurial thinking of like, well, if you're investing in companies, you know that some of them are going to fail, but some of them might be outstandingly, outstandingly good that it's worth hedging your bets and taking a few different risks and like uh, betting on something which may not work out. And very few things turn out to be negative, though it is something to be very careful of. Um, but some things just have like some good effect, but other things can have like thousands of times more uh, upside. Being a little bit more open to other forms of evidence is something that I have you know lent into. Uh, being aware of what opportunities lie in different spaces. So I cared about animals and eventually changed my diet and found that also a lot easier when I now have more people in my life who you know care about animals. Um, but was then knowing how to donate to help that the lives of animals be improved was something that uh, I grew a lot in when I learned a lot more about what the opportunities are there. And then also the philosophical considerations for things like future generations. Like I knew that I implicitly cared about that and I was more interested in things like, you know, climate change or political infrastructure and, and those types of things around that. But I'm learning more and more about how I might be able to use donations in that space. And then finally, I think the other big thing I learned uh, was not necessarily surprising when you think about it, but it was just a really hard thing to let go of is that having a tax deduction is a really, really common thing that people care about when they give. And part of me is like, well, it also tells the government that I am a good person and care about giving and that they should maybe give as well. And in Australia, like charities do get some benefit from that. That being said, tax deductions uh, make you know, at best maybe 50% to 100% increase in donation. Uh, in many cases, it's like maybe less a marginal tax rate of you know, 30 cents in the dollar. 
And so you're only giving a little bit more uh, if you get a tax deduction for it. The difference between your giving options are at least you know, two times as much, but often 10 or 100 times as much. It's definitely worth giving to the thing that doesn't have the tax deduction if you think that thing is going to be much better. Um, and that's also why giving what we can says quite specifically to the organizations that can do the most good, most improve the lives of others, not just the charities and not just the charities in your country. And then other things like uh, I've started giving a lot more towards infrastructure things like funding the overheads of an organization so that those people who do care about overheads, you know, know that 100% of their donation will go to the program or something like that. Even knowing that that's basically a wash, it's a bit of a fallacy and I don't want <laughs> people to believe that, but you, know, you kind of act in the world that you live. There's, there's, a, there's a lot to untangle there. Um, the other thing I wanted to pick up on is this kind of mindset you said of like taking bets and almost treating charity donations and stuff similar to investments where you kind of have a portfolio of things similar to how you invest in startups, some things which fail or which only succeed on like a smaller scale, but a couple of things that then end up really paying off. And those things are super important to invest as well, because very few people are willing to take those chances. Um, when governments use tax money to um, spend in foreign aid, they have like an accountability, right? That um, prevents them from doing it. And often people uh, really want to have that certainty. Yeah, I think that I personally have taken a bit of a hybrid approach where I, a certain portion of my giving, I really like to be on things which I feel are really robust. Um, so, I know that you know, there's a really good chance that if I'm giving this money to, say, the Against Malaria Foundation or any of the GiveWell top recommended charities through the Maximum Impact Fund, I know that it's going to be that next dollar that will be most helpful um, in expectation for people who are currently alive today having poverty or easily solvable health conditions. That being said, I also devote a certain amount to other things that are more speculative because I think that if you're willing to take that risk, it, you know, you could be, your, your money could be much more impactful. I think it's okay. And in many ways, I encourage people to not get not being certain or having mixed preferences to get in the way of giving. So sometimes people might be like, I don't know how to weight these things, maybe to the point where they might throw in the towel and say, uh, it's just too hard. And there's something called the zero problem. And it's this idea of like, if you think about the model of how do you have the most impact, if any of the things in the equation are zero, like you're crowding out someone else's funding, then you have zero impact. But that's only a strong consideration if you're looking as an individual, which is also what I really like about thinking of your giving as being part of a community of givers. So if the person you're crowding out is also someone who cares about giving effectively and they will fund something else which is effective, then that's not a problem. Like, uh, like, and there are many things that are solved by giving as a community or give, being part of a giving community. And that's why things like um, the Maximum Impact Fund with GiveWell and all of the effective altruism funds are quite useful as a way of collaborating and uh, as donors. And at least some portion, if not a significant portion of our giving, being given in a way that we're able to solve coordination problems, you can have a much greater chance of having a lot of impact, even without like randomized controlled trials. So like you can optimize for having your money be enough of a percentage of all of the bets that are being made on really good things. <laughs> um, you know, knowing that you're funding that as you know, someone who's part of this project. Um, so we've talked a lot at the moment about these positive experiences and how um, giving what we can has resonated with people and and uh, 
how enriching it's been like for your own life as well and like kind of rethinking about what giving is but my guess is and uh, it's it's just a guess that not everybody who you pitch uh, the pledge to then decides to immediately start giving uh, 10% of their income um, what are some of like the common objections or like skepticisms uh, you hear from people when you're you're pitching this this pledge to them and what would you say to listeners who might be having some skepticism in their minds as well about whether this is something they themselves want to do yeah that's a great question so Firstly, the pledge options that we have are an invitation for people who are looking for this. Uh, they're not an admonition of people who aren't interested. So we definitely you know, want to express this as an invitation. Like, hey, if you want to do a lot of good through your income and you want to be part of a community of people who are doing that also, and you want to make a commitment that's public, um, that you think that'll help you to follow through and you help it inspire others, then here is this option for you, is you can take a, you know, one of our pledges. Also, if that commitment for you is not 10%, uh, which is the most common one, but it's I want to make a 1% commitment for the next two years, and then I want to go up to 2% and you know, for another year and see how I go, um, then we have you know, that option for people to go down the try giving route. So definitely want to start with like, it's an invitation um, and that we have options that are suitable for most people in rich countries. So cover that off first, um, is that if you're trying to pitch to people, you're not trying to convince everyone, you're trying to let them know what's available to them. Um, when it comes to people who have objections, actually what I've found is more often than not, they're a misconception. So it's actually a misconception of what the pledge actually involves or what the community uh, is about or what effective giving means. And then another reason that people might not necessarily act immediately is they're waiting for the right time and they're making a considered decision, which I'm 100% behind. So I think that you know, what I want is people that make a considered decision. I don't want a situation where you're doing a hard sell on you know, um, saying you should sign up now and if not now, then maybe not ever. Um, and you know, while that can work from a you know, marketing perspective of getting someone to do act something quickly, it, it might increase the number of pledges, but it would undermine the pledge in terms of you wouldn't have people who are necessarily as intent on following through. And also, we want people to be volunteering and, and choosing to buy into this idea. In the world of misconceptions, there are people who don't realize that it's cause neutral and, uh, and that giving what we can isn't prescriptive about specifically what does the most good. Um, just that how you go about it is important. So relying on strong evidence and reason and like, we don't know what your moral values are and how you, what your appetite for risk is. But, you know, once we, you expect that you would take the time to have a think about that and give according to that. And we're not saying you must give to charity A and you must not give to charity B. That's not what we're about. And that's, you know, a common misconception is that, oh, by taking a pledge, I'm committing to, you know, give to these specific charities. That's not the case. Um, often another one is people not realizing that there are more options than the 10% lifetime pledge. Uh, people not realizing that you can give later, but we do encourage you to do it through something like a donor advised fund or some other way that you actually are making a commitment. Um, you know, some people I know have, you know, said, well, I can't quite afford to set up a donor advised fund yet. I want to give later because I believe in what's called you know, patient philanthropy, which is that there is an opportunity to do a lot of good by doing it 
starting the, to do the good further in the future when there might be some great opportunities that come up and that you would have more resources if you invest it. So what they've done instead is like worked, you know, made a, another separate pledge and have, had a friend, you know, involved and, you know, like try to make all of these ways to make sure that this account that they haven't set up a donor advised fund, but that is not money for them to touch now. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's about making that commitment that's ongoing, but it doesn't mean that you have to give that money right now uh, if you don't know where to, you should give it or if you believe that there's a strong reason to give it later. Um, yeah, so there are a few misconceptions that, that I think are more often than not, the objections I hear are actually related to not understanding the details, and which is also why I believe part of my project is to help us communicate it better. Let's talk about entrepreneurship. So before you joined Giving What We Can, you were a tech entrepreneur. So um, first of all, tell us about Positly. What was the idea behind that? Yeah, so Positly uh, is a tool to help researchers recruit and manage research participants. Often one of the biggest bottlenecks in conducting uh, research is having, in human subject research, is having people to be involved in the research. So it started off uh, focused on social science and uh, increasingly around the time that I uh, moved on was moving more into health. Um, but uh, yeah, it's trying to solve that problem of getting better research done by having it high quality and uh, much faster and more affordable for researchers. Yeah, I love this idea. Um, and in particular because of this worry that social science research um, tends to overwhelmingly rely on weird participants. So uh, the Western, educated and from industrialised, rich and democratic countries. Um, I've signed up for a few psychology experiments and most other people doing the same experiments look and talk very like me and they were from similar social backgrounds um that's not good if you want your results to generalize to just people rather than university students looking for beer money or whatever um, and it sounds like positively or something like it can improve on that situation right so i guess my question is why platforms like this aren't more popular and also, do you expect this kind of distributed research to become more popular in the future? Yeah, I definitely believe that this is something that's going to be growing. Um, there are like obvious reasons why it's not been this way in the past in terms of just, it's a lot cheaper for you know, researchers to say, hey, if I can just force all my students to participate in, <laughs> in my research, I, I've got a much you know, cheaper research project. I don't have to spend money recruiting. Um, but you are going to get a very specific uh, type of person. Also, I think that we have many trends uh, at where it is easy to reach people all over the world, especially for certain types of research that can be done online. But we even had a lot of success with you know, in-person research, finding very specific types of population um, in you know, various places where they could you know, go into centers to you know, be part of research. Um, so... You know, we had studies uh, where we tried to find like people in Boston who had kids that were like 12 year olds and interested in doing like research around psychology to do with physiology. So like getting them to some exercise and some tests, um, they wouldn't normally be able to recruit that easily. Uh, but my background in marketing and advertising was something that I brought to this field that you know, helped to find uh, people who were suitable. I'm curious how useful you think tech startups are going to be here. You know, so on one hand, you can point to platforms like um, Momentum and Altruisto uh, 
which just make it super effortless to funnel money towards causes that I care about. And then on the other hand, you might think that more tech ideas beyond these successes is just going to become very gimmicky very quickly, or at least a distraction from the less sexy issues that matter a lot more, right? So ultimately, the things worth caring about, um, at least from the perspective of global health or development, are really low-tech. They're things like bed nets or food supplements and so on. Um, and getting people to pledge significant amounts of their income as well is also not the kind of thing that I expect you're going to be able to do with like a really slick app or something. Um, so do you see a role for more tech startups like this one, um, like Positly, in the effective altruism movement? Yeah, so I think that it's going to be very much a case-by-case basis. I certainly am not one of those uh, tech people who think like the default assumption is tech will solve all our problems. Um, in fact, I think I've had you know, varied experience with the industry that leads me to think that I think tech can create a lot of problems and uh, especially venture-backed uh, startups can be something which isn't necessarily going to be the best way of approaching a lot of problems and can be a destructive force in some cases. Uh, that being said, I think that there are really, really good opportunities uh, that can be solved through technology or through technology startups. So if they're solving a problem which makes sense for a private company to solve and those problems are significantly important, um, tractable, neglected, those types of rubrics, then yeah, you use the best tool for the job. Um, And so you mentioned Momentum and Altruisto. The other thing that they're doing is they're serving a particular market. You know, when you think of things from like a marketing landscape, which is my previous life, how I would think of things is there are segments in a market and different people are going to respond to different things. So some people are looking for uh, campaigns like the ones that Momentum are doing that have been quite successful recently. So people who think that uh, it's really important that uh, the U.S., have a certain political uh, context where Donald Trump is no longer the president of the United States. Um, They have a defeat by tweet uh, campaign. So I know Nick and Ari, the guys at Momentum, they are behavioral scientists. They used to work at Duke in Dan Ariely's lab. Um, So they're focused on things that really hook into the fact that humans are humans. We are going to like catchy campaigns we're gonna like things that are easy we're gonna you know like it when we tie things to behavioral cues like you know the savings accounts that round make it more likely that someone will save if it rounds up to the next dollar they're doing the same thing with donations similarly like they're giving people things that like hook into their brains around the things that are more likely to work so like they might like the idea of oh if donald trump tweets donate to you know uh the aclu um and that is definitely serving a certain segment of the market. And I think that that is great that they're trying to do that. And they're also able to use their, um, as they grow and they get bigger, they're able to start to direct funds for people who are less um, tied to a particular cause area or a way of doing things or a charity uh, to things that will be much more effective. So if you sign up to Momentum and they already do this now and you say, look, I want to give... Um, you know, $5 a day to help the world's poorest, they are then you know, sending that money to the organizations which can use it the best, similar to the way that we think about you know, uh, GiveWell's Maximum Impact Fund or the Effective Altruism Funds. Um, the idea that they're kind of 
able to play that role of intermediary for people who don't have a strong preference or don't have enough information. Um, but they're recruiting people by things like, you know, Defeat by Tweet and these other campaigns that tie into other things that people care about. So, um, you know, giving what we can is, again, a part of that market, part of that space. But giving what we can is not focused on being a, don a donation tool, even though we are uh, powered by effective altruism funds and people can donate and have it tracked to their pledge. And even though we do provide giving recommendations and information to people about how to find better ways to give, we're serving a market of people who want to make a significant commitment. They don't want to uh, round up their bank balance. They don't want to, you know, uh, tie it to a behavioral queue. They want to be part of a community and they want to make a significant commitment. And so that's kind of our part of the market. We want to grow that. <laughs> like many people want to grow the size of the market that they're in. We want to we believe that growing the size of the market we're in is a cultural project of like increasing people's desire to help others and to make that meaningful part of their life. Um, and that's why giving what we can is a cultural project of, you know, creating a culture where more people give more and give more effectively. But we also know that again, think of that analogy earlier that I had of like how many people will do something if two people have done it, how many people will do something if three people have done it. You know, that's what we're doing. We're starting from let's find the people who are the 5,042nd person <laughs> uh, to do this. You know? um, and then you know, some of those people may be within that pool of people who have you know, gone through our Try Giving program. They're like, I've been you know, giving, I've made a pledge, and now I'm going to you know, take this step to make an even bigger pledge. And that's great. Um, and they may be the next person, or it may be just someone who has Googled giving recommendations and they come across you know, our, our website or they've gone to Google, Google and thought, oh, am I, am I rich? And then come across, our, you know, how rich am I calculator? And gone, oh, turns out I am. <laughs> By world standards, I'm probably in the top 3 to 5%. Um, and maybe I want to use some of that wealth to help others. Yeah, so it sounds like the challenges are, on one hand, capitalizing on people's existing interest in effective giving, and then showing them that giving what we can and its pleasures exist. And then there's a the challenge of growing this family of people interested in making a difference in the first place. And if I'm understanding you, it sounds like your approach to both is to tackle them as culture problems, right? Like how do we change people's giving behavior in a really healthy, sustainable way? And well, I guess despite your background in marketing, the standard marketing playbook of getting people to buy stuff is not going to be so useful here. Like, this is not a problem we can or should throw billboards and ads and whatever else at. Um, do you say that's a fair assessment of your view? I, I think it's the right approach uh, for different or organizations at different times. So I think that there, you know, what you learn from you know, the marketing approach is who, who, who is your audience um, and why are you the right product for that audience uh, or, or service or organization or whatever. So... With giving what we can, our audience is uh, people who are in this persuadable uh, you know, category to change their behavior significantly. That's our audience for people who are looking to pledge. Uh, but there's another audience, and that's people who are looking to just start giving more effectively. And that's where our giving recommendations or our how, how rich am I calculator or our... Um, 
we're going to be working on a giving guide or our events with partners or running giving games. Like these are their audience is not necessarily to get pledges, but to kind of start people warming up to that idea of effective giving. And we think that other people are going to be somewhere else on that spectrum. And so for, for example, momentum, I, I think they're doing great work. And I think that they're looking at people who don't want to make a big commitment. That's why the idea of say rounding up a, uh, you know, amount on your bank balance, um, it's seen as a it's a it's a nudge that's uh, a small amount um, and that's kind of put you into this you know funnel a bit much higher up in the funnel and we find that there is a bit of you know transfer across where um, you know similarly you know one for the world which get people to take a you know one percent commitment uh, to help the world's poorest they see part of their role is to get people into our funnel. Like, <laughs> so it's like we're somewhere you know, along the spectrum is, um, you know, we're looking for people who want to make significant commitments. But the more people that make significant commitments, the easier it is for more people to make significant commitments. And that's the cultural project. If you think about kind of big culture and little culture is another thing I like to think about. So big culture is like, what do you see on TV? What shows up in a Google result? What are famous people doing? And big culture is a way that certain ideas get transmitted. And then little culture is, you know, what did my friend post on their Facebook, you know, or have as their profile photo? Uh, what is, uh, you know, that pledge certificate that you have on your wall? Oh, what is this conversation that I'm having with you? Like, <laughs> um, what are my friends doing, my family doing? And that's the kind of person-to-person culture. And they're both really important. Um, and you kind of find that, it takes people, so a lot of marketing research you know, shows it takes about seven, on average, seven touch points before someone will do the thing that you want them to do. Um, so if you're a brand selling shoes, some people will see your ad and immediately they'll buy your shoe. Other people, you know, it could take 20 times and they might buy the shoe if they're the right. But if you look at the average person who bought the shoe, like what's the median number of touch points, you know, across all different industries and brands, it's about six or seven. Um, so if people are hearing the ideas of effective giving in different ways, they may be signing up to your newsletter or using your tool or hearing a podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, they're getting these different touch points. And at the right time, people will be willing to do different things. Um, and so if you have this kind of suite of options available to people that nudge them all, always down in this kind of more and more effective route, that's, that's the world that I want to live in, um, is where there are more things available to people that nudge them towards more and more effective. So more conversations that people have with their friends, more you know, significant public fi- figures making you know, significant commitments, more nudges in things like you know, rounding up your bank balance. These are all important projects in, in this me- you know, even bigger project of having people help others more effectively and using their income to do so. That is a lot again to unpack, but I have a feeling that we could talk about this like forever and I'm looking at the time. So we'll move on to the final questions then. So there's two questions we ask all our guests, Um, but the first one is what significant thing have you recently changed your mind about and why? Lots of very big significant changes over my lifetime. I would say the more recent one that's salient to me is I have shifted my views more towards thinking that at large, the kind of machine that is venture-backed startups typically creates a small number of ultra-wealthy people and uh, some useful products or services or changes in society, but can leave a lot of damage along the way. 
Um, there are lots of specific exceptions, like some really great companies uh, doing amazing things and some really great philanthropists. Um, but I, I, I believe now that there is too much power in the hands of too few that are poorly aligned with the needs of the many. And that's also something I like about the Giving What We Can community is it's a community of everyday people who significantly value the lives of others. And we're not waiting around for a few billionaires and governments to like take action, even if we want them to. Uh, we've gone, okay, whilst I wish you know, so much and will advocate for you know, better govern governing, more cosmopolitan governing, caring about the lives of people in other countries, people in the future, non-human animals, everything like that. And while I want more you know, altruistic and effective philanthropists, I'm not going to wait. I'm just, <laughs> like, just going to start acting now to do what I can. I've got to ask, what kind of damage do you have in mind here? Like, can you give an example of where VC-backed tech has caused serious harm? I, I've, I've worked a lot in advertising and I was, I was doing, uh, I was working in marketing around the time of the 2016 election um, and saw firsthand how that stuff was being run. I was even at a conference where uh, some of the people from Cambridge Analytica were talking about how they... Uh, used vulnerabilities in Facebook, essentially, and the, the tools of the trade um, that were not unfamiliar to most marketers uh, to have a pretty terrible outcome for the world, um, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, then you look at a lot of the stuff around, you know, the ways that many people use social media isn't great. The number of monopolies that we have now is a bit disconcerting for things like, you know, um, if things are in the wrong hands, uh, there's, so there's like a series of things that I'm uncomfortable about in terms of the most successful of, you know, successful startups, but also the path to there often involves, um, a lot of people who might be, you know, underpaid, uh, or, you know, pushing out the jobs of other people without consideration for, you know, how it's going to be done or, you know, for example, like Uber with their, uh, drivers, which are essentially taxi drivers, is just not finding a way of paying them appropriately. Like, there's a lot of just like things which you know, disruption. I like. I believe that uh, creative destruction is a really good thing. Like, uh, but I also believe that disruption can be just damage, and so it can be really hard to know ahead of time, you know, what it's going to do, you know, which is going to be, and how to like push things more towards the, um, you know, creative destruction in a good way. Uh, and there are movements that I've, I've been a part of, like uh, my previous company, uh, Sendal, uh, was the, Australia's first technology B Corp, trying to say, look, hey, we're going to draw a line in the sand. Here's the types of things we're going to do and not do. But even then, like, uh, it's really hard to act as a business uh, in the public uh, good if most businesses aren't doing it, if your shareholders and your um investors or you know, all of these people aren't nudging you to do it um it's a lot easier to make it look like you're doing good than necessarily do good um by the public by your employees and at the end of it um whilst again there are some fa fantastic examples of people who are using their money for uh, good there are way more examples of people who are using all of their wealth to generate more wealth <laughs> um, and to come at the cost of other people increasing inequality um and uh, you know, protecting, protecting dying industries or, you know, increasing uh, pollution and stuff like that. So uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity for good with technology and entrepreneurship, but I think the way that we do it um, and the outcomes aren't always great.
No, wow. And um, the very last question is what are three books, articles, films, podcasts, other bits of media that you would recommend to anyone interested in finding out more about what we talked about? Oh, so many options, but I'll, I, I think I have to, like it would be very on brand for me too. And also I think to, very authentic for me to recommend Doing Good Better by Will McCaskill, one of our founders, and also The Precipice by Toby Ord, one of our other founders. Um, these are not just books that our founders have written. These are excellent books <laughs> um, that really explain a lot of you know, why we're doing what we're doing. And from the early work of uh, Will McCaskill, you can see kind of the underlying, there is an opportunity to do a lot of good and there are people who are doing it. And you know, here's a bit of the primer on effective altruism and kind of the early giving what we can. And then the pre precipice, which recently came out, uh, makes the arguments for why it's important to think about the long-term future and, and some ways that we might think about that. And um, yeah, I think that's fantastic. Um, in terms of other resources, um, we have a lot of stuff on our website that I actually quite recommend. Um, so from our member stories to find out like how people from different walks of life make effective giving a meaningful part of their lives, uh, as well as just like information on effective giving. So giving recommendations, you know, myths about aid, all that stuff. And we're trying to be much more active with our blogs and newsletter and, and other materials. So I think it's a really good way of staying informed. Luke Freeman, thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you guys very much. It's been lovely. That was Luke Freeman on giving what we can and using tech for charity. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Luke. There, you'll find links to all the papers and books referenced in our conversation, as well as a blog post explaining the key ideas we discussed. I also recommend you check out some of our other episodes on effective giving, especially episode 12 with Sanjay Joshi, the founder of the charity evaluator SoGive, and episode 8 with George Rosenfeld, who sets up a student charity called May Week Alternative. If you have any feedback, please do let us know. We're currently looking to try out some new things and trialling out some new features. So knowing what you think works and what doesn't is super useful to us to help improve the podcast. This could be anything from leaving an honest review on wherever you're listening to this, or emailing us at feedback at hearthisidea.com. We also have a feedback form on our website that you can fill out anonymously, should you want to do that. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, if you want to support the show more directly and help us pay for hosting these episodes online, you can leave a tip by following the link in the description. Thanks very much for listening.